in prayer. Father, you, you do reveal yourself to us in so many ways. This morning we closed our morning worship with the refrain, O Christ, surround me. And just like the love of a mother that we celebrate today, we give thanks for them, and we give thanks for your love. We ask that you surround this group as we seek your word today. And bless those who provide it to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning, everybody. To repeat, happy Mother's Day. Uh, do you all remember last year, it was, that we studied um, a, a course on Coexist? And it was about relationships with um, Islam down through the ages. And at one point, Zev passed out a handout that was a sample list of English words derived from Arabic. Do you remember this? Quite a few of them. Okay, so this is just a little bit of a reminder. Uh, today we're going to talk, learn two new words, or maybe not new words. You might know them. Algebra and quiddity. But I really want you to think about spiritual algebra. But what is algebra? You're going to tell us. You, you tell us. Okay, I will do that. Okay, if you remember... I uh, indicated that since algebra derived from Arabic, that probably most high school students just had their appreciation for Arab culture decline. <laughs> How many people here remember your high school algebra? Oh. Okay. The word algebra is an interesting word because the original Arabic Al-Jabra, Al-Jabra literally means the reunion of broken parts. The reunion of broken parts. In other words, algebra is a kind of mathematics that brings back into unity that which has been broken apart brings different elements together. So that's, in a sense, what we're going to be doing. But before we get to spiritual algebra, we're going to have a little review. <laughs> All right. Got three equations up here. First equation, x equals... Minus b plus or minus the square root of b squared minus 4ac over 2a. How many people know how to solve that? What is that? Yes, it's the quadratic formula. What a, a cannot equal 0 because what happens when you divide by 0? Your computer goes tilt. Okay, so we know a does not equal 0. And this is the solution to all equations where ax squared plus bx plus c equals 0. Okay, how many people remember solving quadratic equations? 
All right. All right, let's try something a little different. This is where algebra crosses over into geometry. X is equal to the square root of a squared plus b squared. Anybody tell me what that is? It's the Pythagorean <laughs> theorem. Because what is X? X is the hypotenuse. Okay, somebody remembers not only their high school algebra, but their high school geometry. Now I want to do a really quick introduction. One of the things algebra led to was not just certain equations like this, but also the study of fields, groups, and rings. I'm not quite sure what rings are. And as part of that, they developed a couple of extra symbols that are called Boolean algebra. And I want you to do two quick symbols here. This is the symbol for, anybody know? And, and. And this backwards C is the symbol for if then, if then. So we're going to complete this one. If A equals C and B equals C, then what? A equal, who said what? A equals B. Okay, anybody know what this is? Well, it is a syllogism, but it is also a mathematical axiom. Things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. Things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. And that is the kind of algebra that you need to know for the rest of the presentation. <laughs> Isn't it nice to know we're not going to be actually doing any quadratic formula? Okay. All right, and now John is going to introduce a Latin word, and one clue is it does not refer to a game that apprentice wizards play at Hogwarts. Boy, I wish I had you as my algebra teacher. <laughs> no, you okay. don't. Okay, uh, who knows the meaning of the word quiddity? Ah! Dr. Jim, what something really is. Quiddity is the Latin word for isness, whatness. So, uh, lawyers, what's a famous a term that comes into the law that has the core of quiddity in it. Uh, keep going. It's a, it's a Latin phrase. We use it all the time. It's the way the world works. Quid pro quo. What does quid pro quo mean? This or that for this, right? It's an exchange. So, when people down in the ages started studying philosophy, what they wanted to know was, what's the quiddity of something? What's its essence? What is it? Now, give me some synonyms for quiddity now that you know what it is. Um, essence. True thusness. True thusness. Whoa. That's a Buddhist term. <laughs> the gist the heart, the core, 
Uh, the body, maybe, 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 maybe. What it is, what it is. Quintessence. Okay, so what we're going to do now is combine these two words together and start at Matthew 7, 12. And I want you to find that text, please, in your Bibles, if you have them. I'm sure you do. And for the rest of this class, we're going up, up, from the bottom up. I'm starting down at the bottom, Matthew 7, 12, where those two Torah scrolls are. I'm also going to need somebody who likes to read to find the next text, Matthew 22, 34 through 40, and be ready to read it at the right time. So, who's got Matthew 7, 12? Ah! In everything, do to others as you would have them do, do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, last week we did that outline. Does anyone remember from memory what the thesis of Jesus' sermon is and where it's located? Well, that's, yes, on a deeper level. He is deriving much of what he's teaching from the prophets. So, brilliant insight on that. But in Matthew 5, he gives you the thesis. Do you remember what it is? I tell you that unless you're, well, I haven't come to destroy the law and the prophets. That's clear. But he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the law of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious legalists, you're not going to be entering into the kingdom of heaven. So his thesis is, I came to fulfill the law and tell you what it really means. And it's not this exterior thing that's going on that you see. That's his thesis. Now, when he gets to the end, what's his conclusion in 7.12? He said, I came to fulfill the law, so what is it? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And then he says something very important. This is... What does that mean? This is... That statement, do to others as you have others do to you. That is the law and the prophets. What's he doing? Ah. If he would have been in a philosophical context, he would have said the quiddity of the Torah is do unto others as you would have them do to you. It's the essence of it. All right, beautiful. Now, let's go to the next text. Who's got it? Matthew 22, 34 through 40. This is in the same book. It's later on in his life. Who would like to read it? 22, 34 through 40. Oh, great. Judge Haas has got it. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher! Which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the quiddity. Oh, and the prophets. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, there's a little bit of a Hebrew thing here that we might want to know, this hanging thing. Do you want to wax on about okay. that for a minute? 
actually a couple of things about hanging on the whole of the law and the prophets hang on this. Um, that first commandment, and in Mark, who knows what Mark adds in front of, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He adds on the sentence which immediately precedes it, Hear, O Israel, the eternal our God, the eternal is one, and you shall love the Lord your God, etc. How many people know what this is? What is this called in Judaism? The Shema. From the word Shema, hear, heed, grasp, understand. Okay? Now that whole paragraph, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, V'ahavta et Hashem Elokecha, B'chol Lubavacha, U'v'chol Nafshecha, U'v'chol Meodecha, etc., etc., was said by every pious Jew, male, female, or otherwise, twice a day. When you lie down and when you rise up. But what you may not know is that this, the recitation of this paragraph from the Torah also had another name in Judaism. Anybody care? Does anybody have an idea? It has something to do with acceptance of a yoke. It is the acceptance of the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. Kabbalat ol malchut shamayim. The kingdom of heaven was not just some distant future reality. It was to be experienced and taken upon oneself in the here, in the now, twice a day. To take upon oneself the rule of God over your life. Second point, how many people... Here, I know some people here have been to Temple Israel on a Friday night, and have you had the experience of the rabbi showing you the Torah scroll? There's something unusual about the way a Torah scroll is written. Can anybody tell me what's a little bit unusual about the, the, the style of writing? When we write... No, it's... <laughs> I'm reminded of the French-Jewish socialist who came to visit Golda Meir, and he said, I want you to know that, first of all, I am a socialist. Then I am a Frenchman. Then only then am I a Jew. She said, that's okay. We read from right to left here. <laughs> no, you English speakers are the ones who read backwards. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, anybody here have a l ruled paper? Okay. Anybody here have ruled paper in front of them? Okay. How do you write the letters on ruled paper? What do you orient the letters towards? The baseline. You have the letters sit on the lines. When a Sefer Torah is written, there are scorings on the page, but the letters are written to hang below the scored line. They literally hang from the scored line. So when Jesus says, all of the Torah and the prophets hang on these two commandments, what is he saying about it then? The whole Torah is written, as it were, 
to explicate these two commandments because the entire text hangs from these two commandments the way the letters on a Torah scroll hang from the scoring above them. Okay, who remembers how many uh, commandments are in the Torah? 613. Uh, and of course then, the way we've been conventionally taught to think, and I'm not trying to be negative, but it's just the way it is, uh, then we go from 613 to most people's what? We go where? To the 10! Now, isn't it interesting, the context of this passage is, Master, what's the greatest commandment? Now, what's obvious in this story? He doesn't cite the 10. Right there, once, that, once you get that, once you grok that, then it will forever and ever destroy the myth that the Ten Commandments is what the Bible said we were supposed to live by. Jesus, the rabbi, prophet, said himself, the greatest commandment is what? It's not in the Ten. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Where's that? Leviticus 19.18. It's not in the Ten. So you see what the Master just did? Out of the welter of the 613 and out of the intense focus on the 10, what does he do? He goes in there and grabs two of them and he comes down here and he says, however you want to put it, he, they all hang on these two. Got that? Does it make sense? So now let's do spiritual algebra. I got the formula right in front of you on the top of the Torah picture. If GR equals LNS, what's GR stand for? Golden rule. What did he say the golden rule was? What is it? Yes, but he said it, was, it is something. It is something. Do you remember what he said? It is something. The quiddity of it. The golden rule, the quiddity of it, is something. What is it? Mm -mm. It's what he said. It is the law and the prophets, right? It is. That's the quiddity of it. Then, so if uh, the golden rule equals LNS, what's LNS? Love your neighbor as yourself. Didn't he say loving your neighbor as yourself is what? All the law hangs on it. So over here he says, look, do unto others as you would have them do to you. That is the law and the prophets. Later he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. On that hangs the law and the prophets. What's the algebraic equation? That would mean thus, gr equals LNS. Persuasive? The golden rule equals loving your neighbor as you love yourself. They're saying the same thing. And you say, I, I can see by your faces, you're just like, so what? <laughs> this is like my big discovery. <laughs> so now we found out something important, though. Because in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Devar one, 
kingdom now, he reduces everything. Uh, when I say reduce, I don't mean that in a negative sense. He boils everything down to the quiddity that is, this is what you're supposed to be about. Do what? Treat others the way you want to be treated, which is equivalent to, uh, to loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And of course, he doesn't bother to put love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength into the equation, because why? It's a given. It's presupposed. It's understood. Zev will comment later on this. You can't. Uh, it's always God's. God's always involved in the equation. So now what did we learn? What's the entire Jewish Bible about? What is it? Loving God is presupposed, but you can boil everything down in terms of the ethical structure of the way we're supposed to be in this world. Very simple. Every situation you just say, how would I like to be treated? What would I like to have be done to me? And then the master says, well, when you figure that out, after you prayed about it, then what? Go ahead and do it. And that's called loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay, so um, that's pretty heavy, don't you think? Or not? <laughs> I mean, we just achieved something. We boiled the entire law and the prophets down to what? To a manageable, understandable heart and core. That's huge. To liquidity. Into an eloquent equation, yes. All right, now I put a couple other texts there for you. Supplementary, secondary rabbinic quotes. Galatians 5.14, Romans 13.8-10. Guess what they say? Paul quotes twice. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself is what? The fulfilling of the law. Wow. So Jesus and Paul say the same thing. If you love your neighbor as you love yourself, a.k.a. if you do unto them as you have, would have done unto you, then you're fulfilling the essence of the law. What did he say his thesis was? Don't think I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. All right, now we're, now we're making progress. Now, let's go up. Now we're going up the rest of the class. New. Uh, who would like to read John 13, 34 through 35? Okay. We, we, oh, I'm sorry, you want to go? Yeah. What I'd like us to do before we move up is to move over. And that is go back to Matthew 7 and look at the verse following the one that we've just done algebra on. And I'm talking about Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Would someone like to read that? Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Okay. I may have already talked about this a week or two ago. What is the narrow gate? No, what is, that's, okay. What is, let me back up. What is the wide gate? 
What's the wide gate? No. That is how it's usually taken, though. That is the way it's usually taken, but these are actually technical terms in rabbinic Judaism. What is the wide gate? No. If you're a follower of the wide gate, what do you try to do? You come up with a rule for every conceivable situation. You develop a whole law code, 613 commandments, also the rabbinic extensions and enactments, and all the other things that get built up into this vast legal structure. That's the wide gate. Okay. What's the narrow gate? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Now, how do you go about doing it? That's your responsibility. I'm not going to give you a recipe book that tells you exactly how to do it in any conceivable situation. That's the narrow gate. Okay, those are terms from rabbinic Judaism. Jesus is an advocate of what? The narrow gate. Don't try to come up with a rule and a regulation for every conceivable situation. Bad news for you lawyers. Okay. Instead, what do you do? You have a few core principles which you seek to live out. A few core principles that you seek to live out. All right, beautiful. All right, now let's go up. John 13, 34 through 35. This is at the end of Jesus' life. The very last teaching. He's been teaching to the masses. Who heard him on the mountainside? Do you remember? The disciples came to him and the multitudes. So that was a mass presentation. Now, in John 13, who is with him? Just his closest disciples. 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are that last uh, meeting that Jesus had with his disciples the night that he was arrested and killed. Uh, or arrested and taken the next day killed. So, you get to 13, 34 through 35. He's speaking to those who already follow him, who are already in, and what does he say? Who's reading? A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. All right, now, let's ask a couple of questions. Well, who is he to give commands? A new command? Just pointing it out. Humans don't give commands like that. Additionally, he's saying it's going to be a new one. This is new. What is this new instruction, teaching? What is it at its quiddity? Oh, Suzanne, love your neighbor as you love your self. Um... This is your, your orient. You sit down and you ask yourself, how do I want to be treated? Okay, so I'll do that. So this is a self thing. I'm not saying it's bad, but 
But you see where God started with self. How do you want to be treated? Do that. Now we go up. Now it's not just loving others as you love yourself. It's love others as, as Jesus loved us. Okay? So uh, if you think this is challenging, is he taking us up to a higher standard? Loving others as Jesus loved us? It's not a higher standard. Well, we can, we can talk and discuss it. We can think about it. All right, now go to the next text uh, in John 15, 12 through 15. Now he gives a little bit more information because he doesn't really tell us in John 13 what loving others as I loved you means. But now he's going to tell us. Who's reading? The judge is working hard today. Yeah. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Now, does he give you some more information in this passage about what it means to love one another as I have loved you? What does he tell us that's different here? Ah, greater love, he says, does not exist among humanity then a person would lay down their life for another person. That's the greatest love you can show. Okay? So what's the master about to do? He's going to lay down his life for us. And he's telling his closest followers, this is the new, if you want to use the term, ethic. This is the new uh, way. This is the new quiddity. You are now going to enter into another dimension. I want you to start loving one another as I have loved you, which means you should be willing to lay down your life for other people, for your friends, for your loved ones, for your Christian family. Now, uh, this is probably the most famous text in all of England. Anybody know why? Every college in, in Oxford and Cambridge you go into, into the, into the ante rooms when you go into the college in the hallways, that, that verse is plastered all over Oxford and Cambridge. Anybody? Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Why? Because just literally hundreds, thousands of Cambridge and Oxford and young English people were recruited into two wars and got slaughtered and they got their names up and all of the people that went to Exeter and New College and Christ Church, all the people that went there, they got killed. Their names are up there. And almost every one of them has the placard up there. Greater love has no man than this. 
than a man would lay down his life for his friends. So the, that's the ultimate sacrifice that you can do as a human being. Notice he says, for your friends. I want you to note that because in a second, it's going to get weirder. <laughs> okay, so you might ask the question, wow, a new commandment? Where does he get off getting a new, giving a new commandment? Now look at the next passage. Luke, the one that's cited there, 22. Verse 20. Who's got it? And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. So you remember this scene. The master holds up the cup, which would have been part of every uh, Jewish celebration dinner, and then he says, now this, is, this means something new now. It means different than what it used to mean. What's it mean now? This cup now, and we don't want to get into the theological niceties of it. Just leave it at, it stands for, it represents, it re represents what? My blood. And what am I going to do with my blood? I'm going to spill it for you, and that's going to institute, what does he say here? A new covenant, a new contract. So, if you're going to have a new contract, covenant with God, and the older contract was predicated on 613 laws, which can be uh, grabbed at the essence of them, uh, of the two, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, if that's the uh, core of the law, then he says, I'm making now a new contract. If you make a new contract, what does it do to the old? It makes it uh, sort of null and void. Or sometimes when you make a new deal, we're all talking about deals now, new deal. You can somehow grab and incorporate some of the stuff from the old deal, right, and bring it in, but then reconstitute it so that it actually becomes a new deal. Did you see anything that got brought? What's this new, new uh, command? I want you now to love one another how? Like, no. That's self. I want you to love others the way I I'm loving you, meaning I'm laying my life down. That's a new contract. Yes, Zev, come on. Okay. <laughs> Before we get into too much debate about the new covenant, let's go to the source of it. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Anybody have it? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of the Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Okay, what's the core of the new covenant? What's the core of the new covenant? What? What is written within them? Ah, the Torah! Written within them on their hearts. Okay. The new covenant is the same Torah written on their hearts, but what has changed? What don't they need to do for one another? What? No, they don't need to teach one another what? What aren't they going to need to teach one another? No, not the Torah. No. Know the Lord. They're not going to need to teach one another know the Lord. What happens now to the first commandment that Jesus gave to the Pharisee? It's not needed anymore. You don't need to have a commandment that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because they will already know that. That's why back here we're talking about the quiddity of the Torah is love your neighbor as yourself. That's what gets written on the hearts. In fact, love your neighbor as I have loved you, says Jesus. And once you achieve that, once that's done, with the new covenant, the Torah written on your heart, the first and great commandment is superfluous. In other words, a lot of false idols... Uh, were being prayed to, and uh, so it would seem like it would have significance to someone that... Okay, here's a little piece of historical significance for you. There were several problems in Israelite society that uh, led to the rise of the writing prophets. One of them was the increasing autonomy of the kings and their insistence that they were going to be the source of law. And the prophet says, no, you're not. A second was the rising threat from Mesopotamia of a power that threatened the covenant community. A third was the increasing gap between the wealthy and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. The fourth was idolatry. Guess what disappeared from Israelite society after the return from exile? Which of those four problems went away? Idolatry. It's fascinating. But... The problem of idolatry went away. Why? 
because they'd gone into exile in a pagan country where they saw idolatry all over the place and they realized, oh, wait a minute, this is not what we are about. We are about the worship of the one God. In a sense, the exile cured the problem of idolatry. Now, from an internal perspective of making idols for ourselves... Do we have to look outside the Christian community for idolaters? What idols do we tend to craft? Well, let's name a few. Churches, liturgies, hierarchies, etc. Sex, money, and power. Just a few. Just a few. In other words, the key thing to keep in mind is that everything is now internalized. This is what a new covenant does. And if you want to look at Ezekiel 36, you'll see how that get writing gets done. It's done through the gift of God's Spirit. Okay? Let's ask the lawyers now. When did this new covenant start? When did it get instituted? Because when the master's speaking here, it isn't in effect yet. When did the new covenant actually start? When did it begin? It started at the cross because that's where the sacrifice was offered. And it was ratified when? We just... (laughs) Pentecost. That's when it was sealed. Uh, if you want to do legal terms, written up and, and uh, laid out the corporate meeting when everybody got put into it. From then on, it's a new covenant. So everything that Zev just taught you now and that Jesus just taught us now goes forward. Yes, sir. Well, it unfortunately turned out to be looked that way, but it shouldn't have been. It should have been looked at as the advancement or continuation or uh, enlargement uh, of what God had already been doing through the Jewish people. It wasn't a break. It was a fulfillment. Okay. I, I need also to point something out. The people who got ratified in the New Covenant at Pentecost, who were they? Right. They were Jews. This isn't the break between Christianity and Judaism. It's the next step in a new Judaism. One thing, you know, there's a famous quote of, um, I think it was, not pa- may have been Pascal. If it were permitted to reason consistently in matters of religion, it is clear that we all ought to become Jews. Because Jesus himself was born a Jew, lived as a Jew, died as a Jew, and himself expressly said he was renewing Jewish religion. And Paul says in Romans 2 that, in effect, if you're a Christian, then you already are a spiritual Jew because you're a descendant of Abraham and considered by God to be in that crowd. So, you you know, even as a Christian, you can... I told this to a Jewish guy in Israel one time. He said, uh, are you Jewish? And I said, after a fashion... 
<laughs> and uh, by a Jew, are you a Jew? Oh uh, yeah, by a Jew. And we got into a fun talk about it. But I said, yeah, I consider myself to be a spiritual Jew. Go ahead. Okay. The key thing to keep in mind is the old covenant doesn't get set aside. It's taken up into the new. That's why I stressed in the New Covenant in Jeremiah, what gets written on the heart? The same Torah. It's the same Torah. The New Covenant does not supplant the old. It includes it. Right. Now, let's go up higher. Romans 5, 5 through 8. You might be sitting there thinking... I can't even love my neighbor as I love myself. How am I ever going to love others, my brothers and sisters, the way Jesus loved me? So I'm going to read this just for time and for clarity. And It's uh, Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. Now watch this and compare carefully what Jesus just said about dying for his friends. You see, at just the right time, this is Romans 5, 6, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, which we see illustrated through human history over and over again. When? Where? How? Every time somebody says, I'm going to protect you, I, I, you're a good person, I'm not going to let them do X, Y, Z to you, you lay your life down. War, police. So, but the thing is, he says, look, there's not a lot of people that are going to die for, for some really righteous person, some holy person. But for, for a good person, Joe Blows, the people that we know, yeah, there's something within human beings that has the capacity to say, I'm not going to let you get killed. I'm going to do something about it. And now, now with the contrast. But God demonstrates His, God's kind of love to us in this. What's the difference? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now notice the things that He describes about all of us. He says in verse 6, we're powerless. He says in verse 6, we're ungodly. And he says in verse uh, 8, we are sinners. So therefore, we, are, we were, what? The enemies of God. And so, uh, uh, pardon me? No, Paul actually says in Ephesians 2 that we were alienated from God and were enemies of God. Because we were serving other purposes. We weren't serving God's kingdom. So whether we knew it or not, we were serving a false cause. We were fighting against God. Now, keep going. I mean, so go back up a little bit earlier. Being that being the case, start at verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, what did he just tell us in verses 6 through 8, he described God's love, right? How is God's love different? Human love. Really great human love. 
solid human being, beings, D-Day, the Russians at Stalingrad. They did what? No, we're not going to let people just get slaughtered. We're going to fight. We're gonna, we'll die. But God's love is what? You're not worthy? You're, 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 you're against me? It would be the equivalent of what? Instead of the Allies crushing the Nazis, it would be like, I'm not saying that they should have done this, I'm giving you an analogy, okay? And we remember, they, only, they can't walk on all fours. Just think about it emotionally. It would be like the Allies doing what to the Nazis? Saving them! What? No, not in this world, but, but God's telling us what? What's God's love like? That's how God's love is. Now, here's a little illustration. I don't know if it'll help you, but it's really important. So here you and I are, uh, empty, vacuous. What does he just tell us that God did for us? When you enter into the new covenant, when you believe in Jesus, he says God's love is what? Poured out into us. Through who? Through the Holy Spirit. So now, something is going on inside the Christian that wasn't there before, and it came where? From God. It didn't come, This agape love, bursting and burbling, gurgling up inside the human, didn't come from the human. Why not? Very rarely will somebody die for a... But, you know, maybe somebody might die for a family, good person, but... You know, no one's going to have that kind of love inside of their flesh. So what does God do for us? I want you to do something impossible. I want you to do something supernatural. I want you to love one another the way I love you. And the first thing we say is what? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then God says, okay, I understand. I am giving you myself and the Christ that died for you, I'm putting them inside of you. The very love that caused Jesus to go to the cross is now inside of you. The only way my analogy breaks down is what? Once you put those things in this water, it can't stop. It's a chemical reaction. The way it really works in, in the Christian life is the love of God comes in to us and starts animating us. And you start loving X, Y, Z. People you think, oh, I couldn't could never handle those people. You start loving them. And then you, then you hit person X. And you say, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's beyond what I can do. And God says, I know it's beyond what you can do. Quit trying to love these people that are unlovable in your own power let me who already died for them do it through you. Does this make sense? Okay. It's good for you too. All right, now we have uh, two minutes. Two minutes. Because we're not done. Go to 1 John 4. This is where the new covenant starts. This is where the love of God gets poured into your, into your existence. This is where the new covenant gets written on your heart. This is where love God and love others gets poured into you. Except now, 
we're supposed to replicate the agape love of God. Now, we, because of time, I'm going to have to cheat and just read a few verses, but I hope that you will read both of these today or sometime because they're just so awesome. Now, let's start with verse um, 7. Dear friends, let us, 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love from one another, for love comes from really trying hard to be the best kind of a person that you can be. You see, this kind of love, he's not talking about human love. He's talking about agape, agape. Agape comes from God. We'll find out in a minute why. Uh, now, what is agape? Look at verse 9. This is how God showed God's agape among us. God sent God's one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Now, what is he talking about? Look at verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent God's Son as, what does your translation say? Propitiation. Old school, somebody says uh, atonement, somebody says sacrifice. Madeline, come here real quick. I won't hurt you, even though I have a knife in my hand. You know what John's talking about? The ancient sacrifice of, of Israel that God taught Israel. The sinner, which is what you're going to be for a minute, would bring a lamb from their own flock, paid for. A good one, not a piece of trash. The best. Bring it to the priest. Then you would put your hand on that lamb's head. Anybody know why? Symbolically transferring her sins into that lamb. Then you would confess your sins, not to the priest, but through the priest to God. So go ahead. Just it would take too long anyways. So then she's confessing her sins. She's confessing to God. She's confessing them. When she's done, the priest takes the knife and does what? Slits the throat. The blood pours out onto the altar. What does Leviticus 17.11 say? Zev. <laughs> Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And that the life of is a creature is in the blood. Blood is life. Liquidity of life is blood. Think Jewish. This is how God wants you to think. Life is blood. Blood is life. Your sins went into this animal, and therefore the wages of sin? Death. Blood is life. Where did the lamb's life go? Where did it go? Symbolically, mystically, for 1,500 years the Jews believed this, it went where? On her, in her... So that when God looked at her, God would see what? Not death and sin, but that a life had been shed for her. She okay. was clean. Key Hebrew word here, the word kapar, which is used as in Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But the basic meaning of the word kapar means to cover. To cover. So... When a Jew comes and brings a sacrifice to the temple, 
lays hands on it, confesses sin, the throat is slit, the blood is taken and used for the sacrificial rite, what gets covered? The person's sins get covered by the blood, symbolically. How do we get covered? Jesus' blood. Okay. And the big difference, right, Zev, is they had to do it three times a year, over and over and over again for 1,500 years. And when the Master came and did it once for all, what's the book of Hebrews say? One time, perfect, complete, tetelestai, telos, finished, done. So we don't have to do that anymore. Now, look at verse 8 of chapter 4. What's this? this is the last thought, and then we've got to go. God is, what does he say here? 1 John 4, 8. God is. God is agape. Now, this is going to blow our minds, and it should. We move from love being what? An ethical principle through a new kind of love, sacrificial, and now we get up to the height, the apex, the highest level of the New, the New Testament teaches. Love is not a principle. Love is not a thing. Love is not a quality. What is love? God. Now ponder this. God, God's quiddity is what? Agape. Not all you need is love, John Lennon, which is good. That's human love. But this is another level. So let's put the whole thing together. Christ starts down here and he tells us to do something that's pretty ridiculously impossible. I want you to live your life in this world. I want you to go through and I want you to treat everybody like you want to be treated and love everybody the way you uh, you, you want to be loved. Just, just live that way. He said, ridiculous. Okay, I'll take you into a new covenant. I'll pay for all your sins. And then I'll do what? Give you myself. I will come to live inside of you. And I will pour out inside of you the very love that caused me to go to the cross in the first place. You think, think about this. This isn't you trying to generate it up. This is Christ himself saying, let me love this loathsome creature. <laughs> and then after the love of Christ starts flowing through you for loathsome creatures, pretty soon what I've discovered is what? Loathsome creatures become nice. And I like them. And, uh, and then I look at myself and I say, who are you to call somebody a loathsome creature? Go ahead. Well, Dr. Smith, thank you. Let's just cancel church and go for another hour. <laughs> Loving enemies. God, what did Jesus do here? God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were sinners, enemies, fighting against God, God poured his love out into us and saves us. Now, this is where it gets ridiculous. This is where everybody says, ah. Uh, because if you follow this chain, the same Christ that did that then, 2,000 years ago, is now where? 
in you. And so that same Christ then looks at what you consider to be an enemy and sees what? While he's living inside of you. There's somebody I died for. And you're saying, man, you made a big mistake on that one. No way I can love that person. And the master says, no, I died for that person. Loathsome creature, whoever you might think they are. And start clicking off our enemies now. Who's our enemies? Kim Jong-un. Did Jesus die for him? That's it's It's mind-blowing. So here is why I'm going to end on this. And then next week when we come together, let's talk about it. The first question that I have always asked and everybody I've studied with, they leave a class like this and they say, how am I going to do that? I don't, ridiculous. Now, what if we take this word or this letter and go here, oops, and take this one and go here and take this one and go here and we turn the how into you're lost. What humans want to know is cognitively, mechanically, give me the step-by-step -step formula, give me the broad way, give me the 613 ways that I can actually show love. How do I do this? And there are millions of people in the world that will tell you exactly how to do it. And what the Bible says, don't worry about how, what you should be thinking about is what? Who's living inside of you? Who already died for that person? Who already has the sufficient love for that person that you don't like? And then it's just a matter of, now, hey, Jack, this is not easy. I'm not saying that. But it's a matter of getting to the place where you, you say, wow, did Jesus really die for that person? I mean, really? If he really died for that person, then what did the Master say in the Sermon on the Mount? Good grief. <clears throat> Wait till Zeb teaches on this two weeks from now. I, you have heard, he says, you know, love your neighbor and all this stuff. And kill your enemies. What does the Master say? I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to them. Pray for them. Wish them well. Because why? Because God is agape, and God pours love down on everybody. And I want you to be me, as it were, in this world. Crazy. I'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're all working on it. Yeah, let's pray together before you go. Yes, Lord, we bow our knees and our hearts and our faces before you. This is beyond our mere cognition. Only your Holy Spirit can show us and reveal to us and manifest the transcendent agape love of Christ that you showed on the cross and now want to live in and through us. Uh, help us to have a wonderful day together with our families, with our mothers. And uh, may the love of Jesus shine through us. And we ask in his name. Amen. Goodbye. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>